0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 19th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio.
1: Paris continues managing Olympic expectations. Another blow to the old school ideal of the music press. And should audiences be able to sue tardy prima donnas? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily and the Monocle staffers who got their excuses in last were Claudia Jacob, Nick Moniz and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. They will discuss the day's stuff and we will hear more from the World Economic Forum in Davos. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, producer and senior correspondent, and by Claudia Jacob from Monocle's editorial team. Hello to you both.
2: Hi. Great to be here.
1: Um, you, you have recently both, we should get into quite quickly, uh, doing contrasting travelling. Claudia, you went where it was cold, if I've written down this correctly. <laughs>
3: to South Tyrol, where there was more snow than we knew what to do with. <laughs>
1: um, that, that is good, though, because the, the skiing areas of Europe have in recent years struggled on the snow front.
3: It's absolutely true. Yeah, we didn't expect to have so much snow, but, yeah, we couldn't even fly to Innsbruck because there was so much snow, so there you go.
1: <laughs> really? They, like How much snow do you need in Innsbruck before they start? start closing airports?
3: Well, I'm told that actually it's one of the hardest airports to fly to. Apparently, it's one of the hardest ones to land at because it's surrounded by mountains. So we got diverted to Munich and we only found that out when we sat on the plane.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fernando, you have not been skiing. You've been doing the other thing.
2: I've been doing the other thing. I was in my homeland, of course, so I was enjoying the beach. And I have to say, it's been, uh, before I went to Brazil, there was some crazy heat waves in the country. Mm-hmm. But while I was there, it was mild, it was lovely, it was 30 degrees, very pleasant, especially in the state of Bahia yeah
1: Well, we will have more from you both later in the show. But first of all, joining me now from Davos, from where Monocle has been reporting all week from the World Economic Forum, uh, is Jeff Merritt, Head of Centre for Urban Transformation at the WEF. Jeff, I know you have now made it back to Zurich, but thinking back on Davos, there was a, a lot of talk about how cities are on the front lines of a lot of global challenges, as indeed they are. But why is the WEF, do you think, an especially important forum uh, for city leaders.
4: Well, thanks, Sandra. It's uh, great to to join you. Well, I mean, first off, I think it's important to say that I think the World Economic Forum is more important now than it's ever been in its history. Um, in you know a time of really a it's a great lack of trust globally, and that was really the theme of this year's annual meeting was bringing together you know, leaders from across sectors, across industries, across geographies to help, you know, really move us in a in a direction towards greater collaboration, greater uh, partnership globally. And, you know, we know as there's more geopolitical challenges that cities are ultimately, uh, you know, a lot of where the action happens, right, is even as we have Uh, disagreements across national borders. At the end of the day, if you're in a city, you're ultimately, you know, I used to work in city government, you have to, you're the ones responsible for picking up the trash, making sure the trains run on time. And so uh, it's really a place that, you know, whether you're a city leader, whether you're in, in on the business side that, you know, you're coming to the annual meeting in Davos to really just get things done.
1: I mean, what kind of startling, if any, conclusions did did people leap to about the future of cities at WEF uh, this year? Were there, I guess, recurring themes in the urbanism discussions?
4: You know, I would say, actually, you know, it's less that there's, you know, recurring themes. I think it's that, you know, we, you know, with each year we, we come together and we're talking about a lot of the same big global challenges that we that we feel on the streets of our cities and in our communities. These are issues of of climate change, the need for sustainability and climate action. These are issues of equity and the need for sort of uh, you know shared growth and prosperity. But I'd say one of the things that I felt was different this year, or that I was very excited about, is there's there's an incredible sense of optimism and progress that uh, just takes something like Uh, The construction industry, Um, you know, we know if we're going to uh, really make significant progress on climate, we have to focus on the built environment. That's where, you know, the vast majority of uh, greenhouse gas emissions hail from and Uh, The construction industry has traditionally been one of the slowest to move in this area. But actually, you know, I think in the last couple of years and last year in particular, we're seeing a lot of real progress there on alternative building materials, new approaches to optimize the construction process, really to overall, you know, decrease the environmental footprint and uh, be able to just build better, faster Uh, And for the first time in recent years, we're actually talking about doing that uh, more affordably,
1: too. Well, on that thought, uh, is there optimism that building better and faster will actually make the cities, especially the great urban hubs, uh, any cheaper to live in? I know the Global Future Council on Cities did address the fact that people are just getting priced out uh, of far, far too many cities.
4: Yeah, so we just uh, this week released really a collection of different sort of insights and recommendations from our Global Future Council on Cities. It's a collection of, of mayors and CEOs and civil society leaders together looking at really what's working to address this affordability challenge. And, you know, the answer is that there's not one, you know, magic bullet here. It's an all hands on deck type of approach that you need to be looking at everything from the cost of housing to the cost of transportation, food, all of these different elements sort of together are are how we make progress. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of really uh, good progress that's been made in select places around the world. There's a lot of great insights and uh, that we can sort of learn from. And the key here is really double down on our successes. And so that's what we're trying to do is utilize our global network and our communications platform to really accelerate that good practice.
1: I mean, there was also discussion by the global commission on nature positive cities which in many respects i think I guess if we think of the history of cities would have seemed like a slightly counterintuitive proposition cities and nature often having been seen as uh, each other's antithesis but is there growing understanding that the two have to work together if if the cities of the future are going to succeed
4: it definitely you know a growing acknowledgement that or a lot of the challenges that we face that, you know, I think for the last you know, decade or two, there's been oftentimes a look towards technology as an answer to a lot of those problems. And now we're actually realizing, I think extreme weather has been a wake up call in a way that yes, technology can help you, but sometimes the best solutions or solutions have been around for thousands of years, right? If you're, you're facing extreme rainfall and storms and flooding, well, yes, the technology can let you know, you know, if, if streets are beginning to flood, but it's actually just having greater green space organic matter that can actually act as a sponge if you will and and to absorb that water right and so sometimes you have to go back to the basics and so um that's what i'm really happy to be seeing here is a really holistic approach to how do we solve problems and it's not always the most expensive state-of-the-art solution sometimes it's just again you know what's been working for for decades centuries
1: Jeff Merritt, head of the Centre for Urban Transformation at the World Economic Forum. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller and joining me now in the studio, well you know he's here in the studio, you heard from him earlier for some reflections on the culture is Monocle's senior correspondent uh, Fernando Augusto Bacheco. Um, Fernando, first of all uh, we are going to talk about Sigmund Freud yes. and Brazil which does not seem like the most obvious overlap of subjects, but as you have been Been explaining to a faintly incredulous office this week. Um, Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, is something of a superstar. Where you come from? Absolutely, not only in Brazil but in Latin America. So when I got the press release
2: that the Freud Museum here in London was doing a special exhibition about Freud in Latin America, I was like, finally, Uh, very
1: finally, finally, exactly. I mean,
2: and I think people should know this because Freud is huge in Brazil, and and it's funny because my
1: mother is a therapist and my Mm -hmm that mum is a psychologist. Uh, so, you. So can... from this, I infer, Fernando, that literally everybody in Brazil is a psychologist yeah. or a psychiatrist.
2: But you know what's interesting? If you go to, if you have, a, you know, a psychoanalyst, it's quite common to discuss things in Brazil, to say, well, I went to my therapist or to my psychologist. It, it's So, it's interesting uh, living here in the UK where people are talking, finally, they're being more open, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about their mental health, about other things. Uh, but for me, it was always the case uh, from a young age. Uh, and and, and I was wondering, I was talking, and we're going to hear an interview soon with Jamie Rovers. She's the curator of the exhibition. And I was saying, why is he so popular in the region? And I think one of the reasons is that we talk about our desires and drinks in quite an open way. And I wonder, this is just my, um, you know, my, my suggestion on why he's so popular in the region. I think everyone should go and visit and learn a little bit more about Freud and his connection with the continent.
1: Well, let's hear that interview.
0: My name is Jamie Ruers, and I'm the exhibition curator of Freud in Latin America at the Freud Museum London.
2: And Jamie, I have to say this exhibition is very close to my heart, being from Brazil. And I have a feeling, I mean, except South Americans, of course, that people perceive psychoanalysis and Freud as a very European thing. But he had such a hold in the continent, right?
0: Yes, and this isn't a narrative that's often told in places like Europe and North America, I think this is a lesser known story here, which is why we really wanted to explore it through this exhibition. Because actually, the reality is that the highest proportion of psychoanalysts anywhere in the world is in Buenos Aires, in the capital of Argentina. So this is really important, actually, that these stories are told and also to get to the roots of how these ideas spread so early on.
2: And it's funny as well, just a little uh, quirky fact that some of the visitors here, you have a lot of Argentinians and Brazilians that come here. I mean, that already tells you something, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. So working in the front of house, when you're greeting the visitors, I'd say the third largest demographic of people that come through the door are from Argentina, Brazil. And then you get every now and again, someone from Chile or from Mexico come through as well often with a history, with psychoanalysis, whether they are analysts themselves or they know someone who is. And it's a very personal experience when they come to the museum.
2: And who are one of the first people that started to spread Freud's ideas to the continent? And I think we have to add here that Freud's always had this fascination with Spanish language books. So it was not just a new thing for him as well.
0: Yeah, that's right. So the first individuals who were really taking Freud's ideas forward were in the medical field, a gentleman in Brazil named Juliana Moreira, who was a doctor and he represented Brazil in a lot of congresses around the world. But as early as 1913, he to London to learn more about what was happening in the advances of medicine. And while he was here, he heard about Freud's psychoanalytic theories. And from that, he took some of these ideas forward to revolutionize the treatment of mental health in Brazil. And this idea that mental health and different illnesses and so on were not rooted in things like race or genetics, but were rooted in something much more external, than that. And other figures include Hermann Greve Schlegel, who was a doctor in Chile, who brought Freud's ideas there and adapted using psychoanalysis into the medical profession. So both of them learning and then adapting them. And then going forward, they would then go on to be sort of psychiatrists, such as Honorio Delgado in Peru, who would actually write, maybe not hundreds, but tens of letters with Freud for many, many years. And they exchanged gifts, they exchanged photographs. One of his photographs is actually in the exhibition. And Freud called him my first foreign friend. It's oh, that's that's nice, isn't it? That's very sweet.
2: <laughs> and one of the reasons as well that perhaps Freud still very much talked about in the continent is... The dream analysis and the dream part, and it's super interesting because you show some media from the continent that actually interpret the dreams with beautiful photography and illustrations. I think that's a fascinating part here of the exhibition as well.
0: Yeah, so it wasn't even just the individuals that were spreading these ideas, it was the ways in which they spread the ideas. So there were newspapers in Argentina, a newspaper called Jornada, as early as the 1930s that was using these ideas in regular articles. But some of the most amazing pieces that we have in the exhibition are four women's magazines from Argentina called Idilio. And they're from the 1940s. And there was a regular article in this women's magazine where women would write in their dreams and they would be psychoanalyzed in a piece called Psychoanalysis Will Help You. And they would be analyzed by these two psychologists but complemented by these surreal photo montages of people turning into animals and getting trapped at things or stuck on tops of ladders, but they were representations of the women's dreams and actually quite satirical and they became iconic in themselves.
2: It's funny, I think he does say something about the continent that it accepted those ideas so quickly because... For me, even when you talk about psychoanalysis, I even feel in some parts of Europe still the taboo to say you go to therapy or whatever. But I think it's very different from the region. People are able to talk about themselves in a more freer way. But... This is just my suggestion. What do you think about
0: this? No, I think you're completely right. And I think the fact that Freud was being brought into the mass culture of the day, popular culture of the day, through magazines, newspapers, and even these 10-volume pieces called Freud al de todos, so Freud available for everybody, available for all, these were printed very cheaply and widely disseminated in Argentina as early as the 1930s. And when Anybody can read Freud. You have a different approach to him than if it's just the doctors or just the psychiatrists. He becomes a part of the language, he becomes a part of the culture a bit more informally than maybe it is in Europe because there's nothing like that happening here. Uh,
1: Fernando, would you like to back announce that and once again remind our listeners where they can see that exhibition So Freud in Latin America is at the Freud Museum in London until the 14th of July
2: and it's a great exhibition and the whole museum is actually quite, it's been my first time there, it's close to Hampstead
1: great place to go. Well, we must talk about other developments in the culture this week, and kind of a sad one, actually an extremely sad one for Mm -hmm. those of us who remember, or in at least one case in this table, actually worked for the old school music press. Um, One of, I guess, its most obvious echoes in the online era is about to be no more. Absolutely. So Pitchfork, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which
2: was a great uh, alternative music website, some great criticism there, even Mm -hmm. if you didn't agree perhaps sometimes with, the, with their ideas you have to say that they were very much relevant and they occupy a tremendous space in the music industry
1: I mean it, it was one of the few places where you could write and read at length um, thinking about music thinking out loud about music people arguing about music at length
2: you said the right thing as well it was not just a bunch of press releases mm. which you see quite a lot uh, online as well so Condé Nast bought uh, the brand actually in 2015 and now it's a bit of a weird one the wording they said so they are bringing them towards the GQ organization mm. which a lot of people actually found awkward because GQ of course is a man's title uh, so what are they saying that uh, a music website it's its kind of part of the, the man's world in a way as well uh, so I think a lot of the journalists I think some of them were quite surprised. I mean, they're 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 talking on social media about how most of them actually have been fired. I think some of them mm. might be reintroduced to GQ, uh, and and it's just sad. And, and other people, I don't know if you would agree with this, Andrew. Some people are saying that even the labels perhaps they're not as supportive of the music press because personally I think there is a market for it, and I want to end the story as well on a positive note because there are still quite a lot of uh, smaller independent publications still publishing it's very different
1: from perhaps when you were working in the music press well, it's extremely different mm. um, but the difficulty is does this tell us that perhaps the market for you know long form intelligent uh, reporting of and criticism of music is actually now quite limited that people don't necessarily want to read a 2000 word record review which may not entirely align with their own prejudices unfortunately it is very much limited but
2: one thing that I might disagree a little bit, I think there is still interest. I would uh, like to think there was. Yeah, I, I genuinely think I miss kind of those long profiles by mm. a journalist, because what we see now in some other titles, which I'm, I'm not going to mention, but, you know, it's usually celebrities or musicians interviewing other musicians in my work for some titles, I'm not saying it doesn't work at all, but, you know, you need the insight of a journalist. You need you need the critique. Uh, these days, I mean, you need to love, for, for example, Taylor Swift. Great. I do like her, by the way. Please don't email <laughs> me. Uh, but, you know, I think if you criticize her, it suddenly becomes a story. Oh, this person criticized this artist who, is, who everybody should love. Uh, and that's why I think we are missing something here. But I am positive that there are some magazines out there that are still doing this job, although in a very limited uh, way, uh, as you said.
1: Well, on the subject, uh, Fernando, of pop divas who (laughs) must not be criticised, regular (laughs) listeners to Monocle Radio will be aware that you regard Madonna as more or less above reproach. Uh, It turns out that some of your fellow Madonna fans do not agree with that. She is being taken to court. She is being sued by people for showing up two hours later for one of her own shows. Well, I'm a very fair person, and I have to say, <laughs> those say so those yourself. fans, they are wrong.
2: Uh, no, they're not. No, they're wrong in the sense that, you know, of course, if you're going to a business meeting or if you're going to a hospital appointment, things need to be on time. But I think a rock concert or a pop concert, I mean, I think you're allowed to be a little bit late to watch their appetites... I mean, because Madonna is a perfectionist, so everything needs to be perfect.
1: Clearly not where timekeeping is concerned. No, timekeeping, I agree with you.
2: But sometimes there's a light that is not working. There's a microphone that is not quite 100%. And those two fans, I mean... I hope I never meet them in person, but I think they are. I mean, there's an expression here in the UK which I love: the outraged of Tunbridge Wells. They, they are those people. They, I think they are the kind of people that would criticize if you're doing noise in your house at 8 p.m. So,
1: sorry, maybe I'm being a bit too harsh on them, but I'm with my daughter on that one. Really. You you think it's just okay when people have paid a great deal of money, looked forward to a show for months, you know, they've possibly you know organised, they've tried to figure out how to get there, how to get home they may have hired a babysitter and you think it's okay to just wander on stage two hours late? What I will say here, I think two hours is kind
2: of okay, for especially when it comes, when it's a diva, uh, like Madonna, you know, I
1: think... You don't think it's just basically (laughs) bad manners?
2: I mean, sometimes But I think in this case in particular, I don't think so. If she was cancelled or if she had to cut a segment of her show, then I would agree. Because then the art has been compromised. But in this
1: case, the art hasn't been compromised. Um, I am hoping hoping that this case wins. I'm hoping that they bankrupt her uh, and and establish a a legal precedent with no statute of limitations. Because... If they manage that, then I am absolutely coming for Snoop Dogg, Warren G, Guns N' Roses and quite a few others I can think of who did keep me and others sitting unforgivably around. Uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you. You are listening to The Daily. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio and it is now 195 days until the opening of the Paris Olympics and Parisians are now well into the gloomy hand-wringing that usually precedes hosting the Games, at least in countries whose citizens are not obliged to pretend everything is wonderful on pain of being deported to the salt pile. Concerns already expressed, possibly with a resigned if melodramatic shrug, have included fears that the city's public transport isn't up to it that the hotels are infested with bedbugs and that the whole thing will be a logistical and security nightmare. But there's still more, as Claudia Jacob is here to explain. Um, Claudia, quite a few of those concerns that I just listed we have previously discussed on the daily. The Parisians are finding a lot to complain about in the build-up to their Olympics, but but there's more. There's new. They, they keep finding fresh hells.
3: This week, it seems as though the cultural institutions in Paris are up in arms about the fact that they have no real clarity as to whether or not they can remain open during the Olympics or not. Um, Certain institutions like the Louvre and the Musée d'Orsay and the Musée de l'Orangerie have decided to close for the opening ceremony. Um, There are big concerns about whether or not the metro can actually stay open, whether it can cope with the crowds that are to arrive. um, And it's important to say at this point that the government hasn't actually offered any form of uh, compensation to account for any losses that they might incur as a result of it, staying closed. Is
1: it just on the day of the opening ceremony they're worried about or the whole games? Because you can see that this would be a worry for the cultural institutions who would be thinking, oh my god, umpty million people are going to come to our city and they might want to look at artworks when they're not watching the sprint canoeing.
3: That's the thing. I mean, August is conventionally the quietest month in Paris, but nevertheless, of course, when you've got something thing as big as the Olympics, you want to take advantage of all those tourists who will be um, passing through the city, so it's definitely a concern which um, is causing uh, a lot of uproar from various institutions and it's something that uh, the Louvre, for example, is passing on that cost to the consumer. I mean, there's been talk this week about how the cost of ticket prices has risen quite significantly and um, there's a concern that the overcrowding won't be able to be managed during the Games.
1: All of which does sound like something that somebody should have thought of but so does uh, the pace of construction. Now, th- this is a traditional uh, fanfare for all Olympic Games, apart from those held in places like China and Russia, where no one's allowed to complain about anything, that people worry that it's, it's not going to be finished in time, that the 110 metre hurdles is going to have to be conducted over wheelbarrows full of cement um, and and so forth. How worried is Paris really that they're not going to be quite ready in terms of just having stuff built?
3: Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, there, were, there was talk on the 1st of January about this figure of 84% of the buildings that have been purpose-built for the Games were finished. Um, that does still beg the question of what's remaining, and they're quite significant uh, venues. We've got the Athletes' Village in Saint-Denis, which is in northeastern Paris, um, which still has some finishing touches to be put on it. Um, we've got the Grand Palais, which has been under construction since 2021, um, which will host the fencing and taekwondo events, but it's still not complete, and we haven't got long to go. Um, and then this uh, big metro extension that's going on which is hopefully going to deal with some of the overcrowding that we were talking about um there are concerns that that won't be ready either um of course, there have been various different things that have held it up, like the pandemic and the war in Ukraine and a lot of different riots and gilets jaunes protests that have been going on over the last few years. I mean,
1: you would think the French of all people would price those <laughs> in. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, they're used to it. Um, however, um, there's a lot of expectation and uh, all eyes will be on Paris to deliver this summer.
1: Claudia Jacob, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily. You are listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller, and and easing <laughs> gracefully, swan-like, into the studio just then is our design editor, Nick Manese. Hello, Andrew Muller. Sorry, yeah. I dropped drop my phone on the yeah, way through. Yeah. Who, who, um, has, who has recently returned, clearly in a big hurry, from the Maison et Objets. Yeah, it was
5: a very big hurry. Um, yeah, Bino so- in Paris.
1: Uh, uh, Nick, you, you have been regarding tables and other items of furniture.
5: Always. This is my favourite uh, place to discuss design because I I, I, I like your sort of, uh, you know, I get a little bit of an eye roll where, you know, where I send you an email being like, hey, Friday, I'm back from a furniture fair. Can we talk about chairs? Um I, can, I, can I kick things off? I want to show you a photo. This, um,
1: this will be exciting in this audio <laughs> like, medium, this,
5: Nick. No, 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 no. Uh, I, just, I need, I need uh, to get the listener response uh, to whether you would have this chair in your house.
1: Are you sure that's a chair? That is a 100% a chair. Okay. What, what I am looking at, listeners, is what is, to be fair to Nick, recognizably a chair, but appears to be upholstered with the skin of teddy bears.
5: Hmm. Uh, stuffed animals, to be clear, like uh, as in the toys, not as in actual. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, not no, as in and teddy bears, bears yeah. not actual bears. Yeah, that yeah, that, yeah.
1: that would be even. Actually, no, I think that would be less weird. It would be crueler, but it would be less objectively odd. It's kind of creepy, isn't it? It's not kind of creepy. It's the creepiest thing I've ever seen, and I've seen some things, oh, Nick. Uh, uh, um, why is there a chair upholstered with the skin of teddy bears? Uh, to be honest, I. Don't really know. I, I, so, I, I mean, I, I, I realise that's always worth sending you all the way to Paris it's and back not, for, for piercing insights so, such so, as so, that.
5: So I, I mean, I spend time looking at actual furniture that our, our listeners and readers might be interested in. But I can't help but uh, when I walk past kind of some odd things, uh, just photographing them. And I, I noticed at the fair there was sort of like a trend of uh, very kind of like tacky but very, very expensive, uh, playful furnishings. This is another one I I photographed. You kind of can't see it properly, but that's uh, grapes, uh, like probably a three-metre by two-metre height sculpture of uh, grapes uh, made out of glass uh, there's some giant apples uh, probably I don't know a metre and a half in diameter uh, spherical that have been graffitied
1: okay <laughs> I, I, I have a number of questions but they, they can all be boiled down to what is literally anybody supposed to do with any of well, these
5: so this this is the thing so uh, there's there's probably a few things going on so this furniture fair Maison Objet it's probably the second biggest one <laughs> in the world it's uh, attended by a host of brands from across the globe certainly a very big French turnout but uh you know, uh, brands from from kind of everywhere are there to sort of set their idea, uh, set their year in motion, and and show, mm. I guess, what their trends and and what we might expect to see in our homes in the coming years. Um, what this, uh, these ridiculous uh, kind of furnishings that I'm that I'm seeing here, I think perhaps hints to a trend where I think some people really do have too much money and absolutely no taste. Uh, <laughs> and I, th- I think that that's all it can be boiled
1: down to. I, I really don't understand. Because they, they're not quite artworks. Did, 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 did you get a price on the large grape sculpture? You'd be
5: looking at about five to seven grand for that uh, thousand euros. So actually quite modestly priced when you think about it. Uh, but, no, that, no, when I think about it, Nick, that
1: seems completely outrageous.
5: But I, I think, uh, you know, given that you could also get a very nice dining table for the same price. I think really, uh, I mean, what, what do you do I, when you've already got a
1: dining table, Andrew? I, I, I would expect it to be a very nice dining table for uh, that price. Well, this this is the thing. So this fair really
5: does span everything from young designers making their first their first wares that you you know you could get some some lovely chairs for uh, a few few hundred euro through through to these like enormous uh, amazing uh, works of design that yeah you know, might might cost you a few grand for a table, but that is going to last you forever. Um, and and I think. What's fascinating is, yeah, you obviously do pick up and observe trends. I mean, for me, uh, in the actual things that mm. I think our, our listeners would be interested in, I, I really saw this huge resurgence in, uh, not resurgence, but I guess it's becoming more and more prominent in recent years, but really a desire uh, to embrace imperfections in natural materials. I think, you know, previously there was a time where we might sand out something, uh, you know, if, if there was a lump or a tear or, or, or similar in a, in a piece of wood, we kind of like smooth over it and, and there would be the expectation that you would do that, but increasingly we're seeing uh you know brands kind of lean into the yeah a, a split in a piece of wood and, and make that almost like a feature and something to be celebrated and I think for for consumers it's kind of nice because it means that you're getting something that's un, you, you truly are getting mm. something that's new, unique and if, if you're choosing uh, yeah to have a, a timber dining table, why not embrace what the material is actually like rather than try and disguise it
1: i mean I'm excited by this because it means my upstairs floorboards are ahead of the curve <laughs> um, but but is this one of those things where the, the trends you observe at this fair now are the kind of things that will end up in people's lounge rooms in a couple of years or so. And if that is the case, um, what can you tell us about what our lounge rooms are going to look like? Is it going to be the fact that we will all be sitting on extremely rustic but charming furniture? I think,
5: I think that's the direction it's going in. And, and to be clear, it's like, by, by rustic, it doesn't mean, uh, you know, ornate by any means. I mean, there's this, there's this great uh, South African slash Dutch brand called Lemon uh, who... I, I again are using like un, unsealed travertine on 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 some mm-hmm. of their tables and it's still incredibly sleek inc- incredibly elegant. Um I think yeah in terms of uh I guess materiali- materiality in in what our living rooms and and bedrooms and and even offices could look like in the coming years I think it, there is going to be this this shift back towards or continued shift this is certainly already in motion but uh towards yeah I guess I, I guess natural materials and it's it's almost like you don't want to call it a retro aesthetic, but it's certainly, you know, it's almost like this this 1920s, 1930s farmhouse kind of energy sort of thing, uh, but a lot sleeker. I don't really know where I'm going with that. That's the first <laughs> time I said that out loud and I'm starting to question it. But I, I think what I'm getting at is, yeah, uh, things that maybe were, were celebrated in, in our grandparents' time uh, is going to be something that certainly we're going to see coming back through.
1: But does that strike you just finally as kind of a reaction? Does the the pendulum swing? Because my own regular encounters with what I guess is thought of as contemporary furniture uh, are usually in hotels and hotel rooms occasionally, if I get lucky, airport lounges. Um, And there is a look about them or has been for the last ten years, and everybody listening to this will know what it is. It's it's all terribly beige and modernist and, and sleek yeah. and functional and lacquered. Um do you get a sense that everyone has has grown weary of this? I, I
5: think I think there's a there's probably a, yeah a few things going on there. Yes, I, I I do think that is the case. I mean, there's there's uh, I guess in in hotels and airline lounges and and the like, you're you're dealing with another layer of complexity because they've all got to be fireproof. Sure. And blah 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 blah. So it might take a little while for for that to come on, but I, I do think this is this is maybe coming from people realizing that, you know, they they don't want necessarily a table that's been treated with a heap of chemicals uh, that they're then going to have in their home because. Uh, you know I guess we're concerned about you know is this going into the waterways after it's been treated blah 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 all, all, all of that kind of that kind of logic uh, uh, is influencing I think our, our decisions down the line so it's like even even vegan leather I feel like it was having this moment a few years ago but the reality is that it's only 20% uh, actual natural materials and the rest is, is chemical so if you are tuned in and you do care about the, the environment and, and uh, I guess everyone's wider well-being then Actually, going with leather that isn't chromed, but maybe vegetable tanned is a much better option than something that's uh, that's completely vegan.
1: Nick Munez, thank you for joining us. Finally, on today's Daily, we return to the World Economic Forum, which has also played host to a large contingent from Switzerland's International Cooperation Agency. They have been hosting meetings and events with the goal of reducing poverty and fostering economic self-reliance and state autonomy. Deepak Elmer, head of the Economy and Education Section at the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation, sat down with Monocle's Tom Webb and talked about the work of the agency and its year ahead.
6: The Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation is Switzerland's international cooperation agency. It's, if you like, the Swiss version of the Foreign Commonwealth Development Office in the UK, or formerly known as the Department for International Development. And our mandate is to reduce poverty and to promote sustainable development in poor countries, uh, mainly in, in Africa, Asia and parts of Eastern Europe
1: and speaking about working with international partners
5: how do you work with agencies such as the UN for example
6: so working with other agencies is extremely important to us because that allows us to leverage the expertise the knowledge or even resources from different partners because together we can create more impact. Switzerland is a member of the UN, so we work closely with a number of UN agencies, such as the UN Development Programme, UNDP, or the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, or the World Food Programme. But we also work with other international organisations, such as the International Financial Institutions, like the World Bank or the Regional Development Bank, of course the uh, non-governmental sector, academia, and the private sector. And you have big sustainable development goals for this year and beyond. Could you talk us through some of them? Yeah, so I think the um, sustainable development goals, what's really unique about them is that it's a global commitment taken by the international community in 2015 to achieve 17 goals, to be precise, with 169 targets by 2030. Many of them are very important to our mandate. For instance, goal number one is no poverty, It means to eradicate extreme poverty and to reduce the number of people living in poverty by half by 2030, or take number four, it's on quality education, where the goal is to ensure that all children have access to quality education and skills training by 2030. What's important to note about the Sustainable Development Goals is that it explicitly recognises the need to work with the private sector and to realise SDG-related investments by leveraging private capital. And this is a very important message also for our event today here at the House of Switzerland, as it underlines the necessary complementarity between public financing, so for instance our official development assistance that we provide as the Swiss government, and private financing, and in particular private investment.
5: And can you give us any real-life
6: concrete examples of that working in the real world? So... You know, why is this important for the SDGs, if if I may add, that the sustainable development goals are off track. They haven't progressed much since 2018 for various reasons. We've had, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, resurgence of conflicts, inflation, and so on. But another important reason is the financing gap. So the financing gap means the difference between the amount that is required to achieve the fulfillment of the sustainable development goals and what is actually available. And the financing gap is a staggering $3.9 trillion per year. This is why it's so important that we can leverage or we can catalyze additional financing coming from the private sector. And to give you a couple of concrete examples of how we can do that as a development agency, let's say uh, in our case, so basically what's important for the private sector is the the risk-return ratio. If a country, for example, Nepal or Zimbabwe, seems to be too risky, real or perceived, the private sector will hesitate to invest. So what we can do as a public sector or development agency, we have different means to reduce that risk or to make the return more attractive. For example, in Nepal, we have provided a guarantee to Switzerland's development finance institution it's called the Swiss Investment Fund for Emerging Markets, to cover up to 30% of their loss in Nepal in case something would go wrong with the investment. And this has allowed the um, Swiss Investment Fund for Emerging Markets to provide a $12 million loan to a Nepalese bank called the NMB Bank, whose CEO is here today with us at the House of Switzerland. And that bank afterwards is able to provide loans to hundreds of small and medium enterprises in various sectors, such as agriculture. And that's really critical for poverty reduction, because the small and medium enterprise sector is the main driver of job creation. Seven out of ten jobs come from SMEs. And uh, we have actually managed to bring additional finance to Nepal, which otherwise would have not gone there, thanks to the guarantee we provide.
1: Deepak Elmer speaking there to Tom Webb. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to Jeff Merritt and our panellists today, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Claudia Jacob and Nick Manice. The show was produced by Tom Webb, our sound engineer with Sarah Nichol. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening.